Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm here with Imogen Furlong. Imogen, or Imo, has an impressive track record as a cave expedition leader. Imo broke ground, leading the first expeditions to the Shan Plateau in Myanmar. She's also explored the deepest cave in China, was the first to complete the deepest cave traverse in Mexico, and was part of the team who connected and surveyed the longest cave in India. Her recent cave projects have been to integrate families with young children into expeditions and develop a family expedition methodology. She lives and works in the Scottish Highlands. Welcome to the podcast, Imo. Hi. Yeah. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> yes, we have spoken before, but not not on an episode. <laughs> and last time I spoke to you, I think you were about to head off or you'd just been announced as speaking at Kendall Mountain Festival. So how did that go? That went very well. Thank you. Yeah, we were I was talking about how much going out and doing outdoor adventures can help develop young young people so how those experiences are really valuable and how you can get young people to do more of them because it it can sometimes be increasingly difficult to attract people outside mm. when they're stuck to their screens um are you talking about children what sort of ages were you trying to encourage out at all ages mm. but really you know just talking about how you do that how we can inspire young people to sort of want to have a lifetime of adventure so that's what um my talk was about I'm desperately trying to remember what I said in my talk <laughs> it's fine well, it's not a quiz <laughs> oh and and did you have an adventurous childhood is that something that that you experienced no I didn't no, I didn't have an adventurous childhood at all. Um, I grew up in London. Um, I did like to spend a lot of time outside. I liked to go to the parks in London. And I did go to a farm. I was lucky enough to go and see my grandmum, grandmother, um, who lived in Yorkshire. And she had a little farm, little little place. So I did... used to go there on holidays. Oh. So did caving and other outdoor exploits come come later for you? And how did you get into caving? They did. They came a lot later. Um, so I was about mid-20s and I'd, I'd gone and done a bit of travelling after I graduated and I sort of got introduced to outdoor activities, sort of more adventurous activities as part of a sort of taster sessions and things when I was traveling so when I came back I was like this is what I want to do and I signed up to a um a course that was going on for a year to learn how to to do those sports and how to teach those sports and that was with Devon County Council so I kind of moved down to Devon and I started that's really where my outdoor pursuits life sort of started and that was where I was introduced to caving and I went on my first caving trip with 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 the the group that were sort of introducing us to different things. And then they were like, right, well, we're not going to be doing that anymore. And I was like, but I want to be doing that. So I went and joined the local caving club. And that was where 
sort of my whole caving trajectory started from. And what was it about caving? Because when I mention caving to people, it seems like the outdoor activity that has the most people hating it in terms of the dark and the confined spaces and crawling through things. Like, What was it that really um, clicked for you so that you enjoyed it? I think it, it's it's a, it's another world, so it really transports you to different reality, in a way, when you're underground, and time sort of stands still, or it's certainly warped. Like it's not, you, you know, you don't really have any. You don't have that because there's no no daylight. There's no sort of perception of time in the same way. Mm. So there's like periods of there's being active there's being getting cold so you can kind of know what how long you've been still for because of your body temperature changing but there's no there's nothing moving you know there's not all your all your other sort of intuitions aren't there and that's one definitely one thing that's very different about going caving and I think it because it because of that it's just so different mm-hmm. um and 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 I, I, I found myself just wanting to do it again and again and again. And I'll quite happily go in the same cave over and over and over again as well. So um, it's not necessarily just wanting to go to different places, although, you know, exploring new places is always adds an extra level of excitement to um, a trip. But just simply being underground, all of your your nervous system just calms down straight away. It's just like just the sensory deprivation of it i suppose you find a lot of very um neurodivergent people are into caving and that's probably why because there's a lack of stimulus underground which is very calming yeah and it just narrows your focus so much doesn't it like you can just see in your little headlight for me when I've been down in caves and suddenly I just love that sense of your world being so small and and makes it really kind of introspective I think for me yeah I mean it's you're very in the moment aren't you Mm. so it's quite difficult to um be thinking um you know so quite often I, what I'll find if I'm if I'm going hill walking or something like that then I can be thinking a lot in fact I, I find it quite hard to still my mind when I'm walking it's great you know it's great for thinking but not so great for not thinking <laughs> <laughs> and but when you're caving you you're not really thinking you're caving yeah is there an element that you have to be so present as well because there are some risks involved? I mean, if you trip over, get injured, hill walking, there's rescue teams that can we can get a helicopter, we can get quite quick. Or is that not really part of it that you? It's not so much about managing the risks as well. I don't think it's a con. I know. I don't mm, think. It's okay. A- I was just wondering if those errors could make such a um, yeah such a a difficult situation in there. No, well, I guess I mean you know you can try and logic it out, but I don't think that's I don't mm. think that's why. 
And give give me a sense of what the big expeditions were like, because that's definitely something that I've not done. Like how the ones that I mentioned, I mentioned you go to China and Mexico and India. What sort of time are you caving for? Is that all underground? How long are you out there? So um, it a lot of it, you know in terms of how how much time you spend underground, a lot of that's dependent on the the cave that you're in. So and how far it's been explored to. So you might have um, if you're caving a if you're exploring further in a in a cave which has already seen some depth pushed. And when I say push, I mean you're pushing the edge of what's been explored so far. Um, and it's a, ca- a caving term. You call it pushing mm. the cave. Um, you might, you know, a trip in and out might take you 20 hours or something, or um, you might decide you need an underground camp because actually it's not, you're not making any, you're not making enough progress by the time you, you reach the bottom of the cave. But if you're, ex- if you're, if your entrance is near the surface already, then you might be spending maybe eight hours underground because you're pushing. Let's say, well, it depends on how far away your pushing front is. Mm. So, you know, it might take you four hours to get to the pushing front. It might take you, you know, and how long can you stay awake for? So like in China, some of the, what you call them bounce trips, which is where you go in and you come out on the same trip, uh, were like, you know, I think the longest trip I was on was like 25 hours. That's 25 hours of being awake. And it's not, it's not really that enjoyable once you're starting to stay awake for that long. No, I uh, mean, I've, I've run for that long and I start making really stupid decisions. I might start hallucinating as well. I've had that as well. I've hallucinated as well. And actually, when I was, when I have hallucinated, it's been because it's been dark and I've had, my head torch bouncing off things and so I can imagine that just being everywhere in a cave for me (laughs) well for me it's like trying to stay awake trying to stay awake but really the dreams are needing to happen so can you actually hallucinating things or maybe you're not maybe you're really seeing like so (laughs) (laughs) one time like I was uh, was, uh, on a ledge and I was awake so you were you because you're working in a team. You kind of wait until the the next person's arrived at the bottom of the pitch before you keep before you head off. Mm. You so that you're keeping a sort of voice contact with each other, even though you're caving alone pretty much the whole time. You're not they're not right next to you. This is on a vertical trip, and um, I was waiting for somebody to turn up at the bottom of the of the pitch. I was shouting rope free and then didn't hear anything rope free and didn't hear anything. And I was, so I was clipped in, clipped into a bolt and, um, and I was trying to stay away and I kept not like trying to nod it off while I clipped in. And then I just suddenly saw this, like, I saw this like red Indian guy sitting next to me and he had like a red bandana on and he was rolling up a cigarette. I just thought, I thought, why has he not got his helmet on? <laughs> Safety first, him, like that. I know, why, why is he not wearing a helmet? Anyway, I told this tale once when I did, I went to some um, sort of a yurt 
thing where you went and did your you, you did a bit of sort of shamanic journeying mm. like they like do the drums and they're sort of trying to take you on a bit of a journey and I and then I told and I told this tale to the people in the room and they were like oh man you actually saw like a, a guardian spirit um and I was like oh maybe I saw a guardian spirit <laughs> maybe it wasn't I thought it was a hallucination but maybe it was a guardian spirit that's a really nice way of looking at it. <laughs> well, it made me think of when. I... Or do you think I? Because apparently they're like you know often appear as a rent. Or could it be like, a ghost from anymore? You can't. You know, this is such the wrong term to be using. Yes, Native Americans. Thinking when I've done shamanic journeying and and I I remember being guided to go to either a, a cave was one of the option like going down into earth i went down some tree roots and down a cave at one point as well do you find them spiritual places and yeah definitely oh, oh yes definitely definitely yeah i do i do and you know when you go to when you go to myanmar like um they they definitely see the, these caves as spiritual places i mean that's probably the place that i've been where they've like revered caves more than anywhere else and they have this so this so the monks will go and they will build a shrine in a particular cave but what they what they what happens to them is that there's the cave spirits come to visit them in their dream to tell them where the cave is that they must go and then they go there and then they find the cave now, there are so many caves that it's not difficult to find a cave. So, <laughs> I what you want of that. But <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> that is what I was told anyway. And the gnats, the spirits, um, will appear as visions. And you felt that or hallucinated that in one of your expeditions. I've never hallucinated that. That's the monk's hallucinations <laughs> or non-hallucinations. <laughs> but um, I certainly, um, I certainly, sim you know, I certainly get that, you know, that I feel, I personally feel a spiritual connection with caves. Mm. For me, they're not scary places, really. But you must have been on some challenging times in those long expeditions, particularly, or in your caving. Like, what are the sort of risks and challenges that you've come up against while you've been caving? Um, so, well, you know, you have the you've got external risks. So you have flooding, unstable walls that might, you know, like rock boulders, or especially if you're in caves where there hasn't there hasn't been many people traveling through it so anything bits can come off or what what not um so that that you know they're the main sort of external risks i suppose risks of falling risks of um impossible rescue mm. so you know if you have an injury in a particular place then it won't be probably possible to rescue you Although, you know, having seen some recent rescue efforts, it's quite amazing what can be done in terms of cave rescues. But then you've also got your those other risks, you know, to do with you. You've got, like, you missed your own judgment. And so 
we've got a thing like um, in the caving world, which we call cave fever. And cave fever is where you get so excited <laughs> about the lead and yeah. pushing it that you take unnecessary risks. And okay. you have cave, you get cave fever, basically. <laughs> I I was expecting something else. I thought this was just staying in a cave way too long and getting going slightly insane. But okay, so this is just, just excited and just rushing it a little bit, maybe. Well, no, just oh. like, you know, you might not, like, especially if you, if, if, if you think, especially if it's at the end of the expedition and you think you might not be able to go back for a whole oh, year. Yeah. <laughs> get a bit of cave fever and just take risks mm. take risks or not survey when you should naughty naughty um <laughs> that's the caving that's the caving uh expedition leader in me coming out there what um yeah and when you you're the leader what what is the intention of the expeditions is it always just to to just map out what's there or are there other things that you're looking for it's well, okay, that's a bit of a complicated question. Um, <laughs> I just it, wondered, like, yeah, what it is that you're setting out to do when you're off into the unknown. So, well, I mean, yeah. so you know, if you just look at, if you look at, uh, it, you, you know, you've got the task. Mm. So the task is, yes, we're going to go, we're going to map this cave. We're going to push as far as we can. Um, we're going to bolt that Avon. We're going to like get some diver through a sump or something, you know, so, sort of easy to tick off tasks. Um, but then you've got all these sorts of intangible things that you might want to get out of an expedition, like um, around the team and your own sort of. Um, sense of friendship and group and community and belonging and all of those things you know mm. your own personal development and sometimes expeditions are too task focused and they end up with all sorts of falling out <laughs> place because they haven't properly balanced the team elements but you know you see that everywhere you see that in any sort of working group you know it's not it's not there's no there's no new science about that mm. that's your, the john adair model bit management isn't it task individual team and they all need to kind of align and your sweet spots in the middle and if you have too much of one over another then you just the whole thing goes out of whack you know so you might you might have some expeditions which are very ego like it's all about a particular person or an accomplishment or that's that tends to be a bit more in the climbing world than the caving world though I guess, yeah, I suppose like in the introduction I was like it's the longest this and the deepest this and and I guess that doesn't necessarily make it the most interesting, I'm I'm guessing. Oh god, no. I'm not I have no interest in any of those. Mm. <laughs> um but you know, it's always we're always, you know, needing people need craving the headline or they're craving like a bit of kudos for something so you can create it. 
Only not, you know, the smelliest. <laughs> the muddiest. <laughs> I know, and I always... I, I seem to be having this conversation more and more. And then it's like, well, I'm always in the introduction when I'm introducing guests, I'm like saying about these achievements that were ticking off, the longest this, biggest this, fastest this. And then when it comes to the conversation, actually, it's is do we need to be celebrating this so much? Does it leave space for everybody if if they're having a great time caving and doing something for their personal development? It might not seem, I guess, that... Um, get that much recognition because it isn't a first for the cave itself it's better for it not to be the longest the biggest because it'll get so busy or people coming (laughs) (laughs) if I was a cave I think I'd rather be I wouldn't want to be the prettiest and I wouldn't want to be the longest (laughs) somewhere in the middle you know Maybe with a really like difficult and convoluted entrance that put lots of people off. Yeah, they've really got to want to get past that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like, then I'd be like quite happy in my in my conservation, um, self protected conservation uh, space. And then one thing that I have asked a lot of athletes and other people with other hobbies is whether choosing to do these difficult things or or physically hard things, does that help us in the rest of our lives? So what do you think caving has helped you with outside of the cave? Yeah, I remember you asking me this last time. <laughs> I, would, I would love to give you an, a really good answer. Um I, well, I think it's given me a really good, strong friendship community mm. network. I love that, um, and 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 I know a lot of other people value it too because there are a lot of people that don't cave anymore, but they're still in the network because they can't let it go. You know, and I'm almost I'm almost in that camp really. I don't do that much caving anymore, um, but I'm still very active in our caving club, and um, you know, and I do bits and bobs. Nothing like I used to. You know, this long list of achievements all happened pre-parent life. And how I imagine, I mean, as I'm going through that, I'm not running anymore because of my injuries and surgeries. And that's led to a real loss of identity of, of all these achievements that I had and things that I was doing. And suddenly I'm not doing any of that anymore. And how did it affect you becoming a parent and not being able to cave and do the expeditions that you were doing? I I really struggled for quite a few years with the change. Um because it is so it is so hard becoming a new parent and it is um so difficult to let go of those things that defined your life for so long and make a shift and then there's no can't go back it's not like you can undo the decision Mm. um you you know it's a it's it this is your this is your new life now and um yeah and it, it, it did take quite a long time for me to sort of get 
get there, recover from the loss of my identity as a caver being the primary thing. That you were known for, mm, and that you do. It sounds like you've really worked hard to make caving more inclusive for families and to, like, you've done expeditions with, with your son coming along. So, how have you worked around that? Was that quite a new idea for people <laughs> that you were suggesting? Um, there have been, no, I mean, there have been other expeditions that have done something like that, but, um, but not. That I don't I I don't think that there was anything really like that was being organised around that concept, if that makes sense. Mm. There was um we had expeditions where children could go, but they weren't about families coming together to 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 do the work together. Not quite in the same way. I don't think. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, that's what I did. I sort of organised. I'm quite good at organising things. <laughs> um, like so that's how I end up being a, a team leader for stuff because I'm good at organising things. Um, so, yeah, so I organised it, got people to agree to come, come along, other people who felt maybe in the similar situation to myself or other people who just were friends of mine or who liked me or who liked the concept of coming and explore, exploring a new little part of Thailand together. And I chose a sort of a particular limestone-like cast tower, which was quite a large cast tower and didn't have any recorded entrances in it. So we went there to have a look because I thought well there's recorded entrances in all these other towers there's got to be some in this one and this one's particularly big um yeah and we found quite a lot of stuff so that was really good it was really exciting especially that first year that first year was really exciting yeah and it's you said going back to you talking Kendall that it was promoting these adventures for the children as well not just for the parents so what is it that you think the children can get out of these expeditions well, they certainly can get that sense that it's possible to go exploring. Um, so just just uh, that holidays don't have to be about going from ice cream shop to ice cream shop. There was, I mean, look, do you know what? There was a bit of ice cream shopping, okay? I'll, be, I'll, I'll put that out there. <laughs> We weren't devoid of ice creams, um, but yeah, you know it, it. It it doesn't have to be comfortable, and you can you can go into these like really off the beaten track places, mm. um, and have little adventures. Like you can get a kayak and paddle through the mangroves and go look sense of purpose, sense of community, sense of doing things together. Um, that's what I think they got out of that. So there's some of those things, but you know, eventually, you know, in any sort of adventurous thing, uh, young people, you know, they stretch the comfort zone, and they are able to see 
that that was okay that I that they survived that discomfort mm. um uh and and that's that's a good learning curve and eventually then they can become more transformed as a result because they've got these experiences to draw on and they can see they can see how um life can be even if it's just on a trip short trip that life can be doesn't have to be everything that is here and now it can be something else as Mm. well so i think it can make you a bit more self-reliant so what one of the things that um i i I asked uh, there's this this girl called emily who we go on quite a lot of trips with up here in scotland and um her brother's good friends with my son and um and i you know before i went and did the kendall thing i I had a little chat with emily i was like you know what do you think you know what do you think it is going on for you when you've been doing all these trips and she was like well you know for me it's i know that my vanity hit because she's 12 my vanity here full of all my clothes and all my things i don't actually need any of that yeah all i really need clothes and a toothbrush that's actually all I need and I know that's all I need um and a and a mat to sleep on I can cook on a fire and I know that I could survive like that if I had and I know and you know and I think those sorts of just that knowledge that it can I think that can be very liberating because I think that for you it probably means that you're willing to take more risks in your life because you know that you're not so fearful of losing this sort of comfort bubble mm. and i think that's probably why i felt i was able i i was able to move up to scotland without a job to go to and you know my partner robbed he didn't have a job either we just thought well we want to live in the mountains so we'll just move and most people are like why i mean you have my job what are you doing but it, it because you know that well you'll survive because like you if you can survive like there in a tent when you can survive here you really need your house haven't you so, <laughs> I mean, you know I guess I guess there's a there's an element of that there that you'll you'll be more prepared to to take a risk and put yourself out of your comfort zone because you have that sort of self reliant mm. bit. And I, I feel like this goes back to the question when I was saying like what, what you get from caving that you can apply to other areas of your life. And I feel like that is something that you've taken from expeditions. I um, think it probably is, yeah. It's not from any upbringing conditioning. No, you've really, no, because you didn't have that childhood that yourself. And I've last time we talked about you were really young, you were only 18 when your mum died and you felt like that had had a big impact on you doing these expeditions and I just wondered what it was that you thought had influenced it there. Well, um, I just know that life is short and I think that's that's what has propelled me a lot, probably more, you know, like I was saying, probably more than caving or any of those other things it's it's um it's that knowledge that you you don't 
you know, you can't, you shouldn't put off to tomorrow if you can do it today because tomorrow it's not there for everyone. Um, and lots of people do die young. Um, so if there's something that you want to experience in your life, then why not now? You know, and if you're not experiencing what you want to experience in your life now, then why are you doing it? Yeah. And if there's something you want to experience in your life, well, then why don't you go and do that? What's stopping you? Yeah. What What are you fearing that's stopping you from pursuing it? Yeah, I think I had a, it was a little bit later, but my dad died just as he was coming up to retirement and obviously been working on his life and had all these plans for retirement. And it was, he died and it's not guaranteed. And I think if that hadn't have happened, I might be more, oh, well, I'll just work and save and I'll do all this when I've retired. And and now I suppose like you, I think that life's short and we only get one life. And so it's, it's there to make the most of. We're here yeah. for such a short time, aren't we? We are. And it, and also, you know, even if you were alive, you might not be fit enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> proven that with no. my knee replacement. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's, there's you, you know, the disability factor. Mm. Um, but, you know, I mean, every time something bad happens to you, you you learn don't you everything you learn um i mean sometimes i resist for quite a while and then i end up learning eventually <laughs> well of course of course and the i guess that you can get to acceptance the quicker. <laughs> 42 years and i'm still almost there learning this <laughs> But this is why I started the podcast to talk about the tough times, how we get through them. And some of these are the ones we've chosen where we're going off on adventures and exploring and expeditions and things. But obviously, I want to talk about the ones that we haven't chosen as well and and really just collectively see how we can get through those, which for me, it came down, I use the word resilience, but it feels like that's, again, what you were talking about that you were getting from these expeditions, that self-reliance, that you're okay with discomfort if things do go wrong you can find a way through I mean what's what's resilience to you and are those things linked resilience is um is about you know when you think of a resilient person um there's a there's a sort of archetype that comes to mind which I don't really know if it if that really does depict a resilient person but you think of somebody who's really tough mm. don't you somebody who just keeps going and like doesn't complain and doesn't you know that that they're, they're, they're rough and the tough and the and all of that sort of thing but I don't know that that is really very resilient necessarily I think it can really be an outwardly can't it I, I definitely feel like I would have thought of that as resilient yeah of archetype mm. that you're like thinking but actually um i think that lots of people like that aren't that resilient because they end up completing suicide they end up completing suicide 
because they don't ask for help. So I think asking for help is a really big part of being resilient and um, and having having a breakdown can help you become resilient. You know, the, the more tough times you go through, hopefully the less you end up having a breakdown because you can because you can feel it those familiar feelings so that sort of comes down to experience and then wisdom to guide you through the experience like last time I remember feeling these feelings and you know if I keep going now that's going to be not going to be good I'm going to have to stop going keeping going you know mm. so that 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 allows ultimately allows you to keep going if that makes any sense I don't know if it does it does but then I'm thinking back to you being 18 and losing your mum and you didn't have that benefit of experience and wisdom and it was how was that journey through grief for you I'm guessing and I don't mean that as if it's ended now I mean still on that journey it it was absolute hell it was absolute hell it was awful um yeah it was really, really bad, and it, and it, um, it, but it did, but you know, it did take me in a different, in a particular direction. So, it did, it did take me. After about three or four years, um, it did take me into a place where I was willing to try and try stuff, like put myself out of my comfort zone in order to try and maximise the opportunities that life might present, present. Yeah, yeah, I think I can really resonate with that. After my dad and my brother died, although I feel like in some way it made life richer with the experiences that I had in terms of putting myself out there, being a little braver, bolder, and just really wanting to make the most of time that I've got here. Yeah, yeah. But that wasn't I mean, the, the day after. That's like with years of hindsight. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm very much like uh, in a reasonably steady job and, um, you know, reasonably settled and not doing those things. And uh, it's it's whether I've got this, you know, do I want to do those things and I you know that's something that I do ask myself a few times am I am I not putting myself into new situations because I'm scared of you know because I'm scared of the comfort zone factor or is it just because I'm actually quite happy where I am as a I don't know I think there's a bit of both there do you think that I mean, we talked about how you were caving less because you were a parent and and really just those practical side of of being um of having your son. But is there an element of taking less risks because of you've got a son now and you're a parent? Yeah, definitely. And also because I want to spend time with with my family. I I I don't think, you know, you can't be single and be a member of a family, you know, I can't, I mean, I could, I could, um, the the nature of caving expeditions is that they are, you go and work an area. So I could, I don't know, I could take a 
I could take a month off this life and go and live in another reality um, and travel somewhere and do an expedition for four weeks and then come back. But could I do that every year? Um, Don't know. Is this a question that you think mothers wrestle with or are asked more than male cavers? Do they have are the male cavers that you see that do that without any issues? Yeah, I think I think I think it's I think so because I think we do still have like traditional sort of roles mm. of parenting, but um, but it, but should it be? No, I don't think it should be that way. I think everybody should because I think that. Um, that you know, ha- choosing to this, you know, this is my personal opinion, <laughs> um, and 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 other people live the lives they want. So you know, I'm not trying to preach, but for me, certainly, it's a commitment. You know, I make a commitment to being as to making and being part of a family, and that requires me to show up. <laughs> um. And and so that's a commitment I've made. But it sounds like you're doing some really fun things with your son in terms of not, not just the caving expeditions, but other overland expeditions as well. Yeah, we we you know we we've been like going and doing stuff for a long time, and to doing some remote remote uh, backpacking trips in Scotland to some of the remote parts of Scotland with all of our food and everything and getting out there as a family and camping in the hills and going and hill walking and fishing and eating the fish and all of those sorts of things it's really nice um we just bought a sea kayak double sea kayak so hopefully you know conditions allowing we'll start to do a few more sort of coastal forays and expeditions around the uk coastline um so I'm quite keen to do that and with the family yeah so that's, how, that's how I'm pushing myself out of the comfort zone in terms of like actual outdoor activities I suppose and I guess it's another way a different way of of pushing when we were talking about going back to the furthest fastest longest and those those types of expeditions but actually this you might not be getting any records at all but you're doing it in a different way that is out of your comfort zone that's pushing you you're taking your son along and yeah I suppose it's gaining going for those experiences over the the titles of what it is that you're achieving oh yeah yeah I I I don't I don't know that I was ever after the sort of like the title bit I've always been like uh, you. You find what's there, you know. So finding what's there is good because that's what's there. <laughs> I think the one thing that I I love our mutual friend Steph Dwyer has talked about how caving is the last exploration in that we know we've mapped the land, but we haven't mapped what's under our feet in the ground. And she makes it seem so exciting and and new and and that it is our last part of the world that we we can explore and see with new eyes. That's true. Yeah, it is true. She's good at. Um, encouraging caving 
they all think it's really, really oh awful. sorry but yeah but you get really muddy and you have to crawl through tight spaces and it's really claustrophobic okay we don't want to sell it too much <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's brilliant yeah i mean you do who wants to go into space <laughs> <laughs> save that for the millionaire billionaires that's <laughs> a lot of money and can't breathe up there <laughs> it's really frowned upon to take your kids into space as well he's coming to rescue you in space. <laughs> at least on this planet we've got like you know everyone pulling from all corners of the earth to come and hoard your ass out <laughs> so that's what kids are like you see and just before one <laughs> <laughs> and before we started recording you were giving me lots of food growing tips which I really appreciated and I feel it was really interested to ask you about your lifestyle in Scotland because I've heard it you talk, t- talk about it in a terms of resilience that yeah. lifestyle resilience what is it that you mean by that and what is it that you're doing how much how time we got left <laughs> oh well we're a minute over already so <laughs> well this is where I kind of like you may want to invite me back on um this is where um I come clean and I just say I'm a I'm a prepper a prepper <laughs> this is why you're so good at organizing things okay tell us what you're prepping I'm prepping for um for a sort of disaster I'm, I'm i'm prepping for societal collapse there you go <laughs> and shall i just leave it there <laughs> so is this is this a sort of self-sufficiency that you're able to cultivate on the space that you've got in terms of food yeah it was i mean it was one of the factors for moving up mm. to the island um so you know we're in a we're in a you know from my from my perspective um we are in we've got an entire global system which is predicated on fossil fuels and it, in order for it to sustain itself we need to continue to have fossil fuels so that's on the one hand and then on the other hand you have a pressure to reduce or eliminate phase out the use of fossil fuels but there is nothing that can replace fossil fuels. And so we don't, you know, in my, you know, I kind of work quite a lot uh, in my, in my, in my line of work with um, uh, trying to stop biodiversity loss with the team that I work with and um, at work and, um, raise awareness around particularly around climate change adaptations and what we need to do to adapt to changing weather patterns and the sort of climate crisis but even if you kind of say right well we can adapt for the climate crisis how how are we going to adapt to low fossil fuels Mm. yeah how i I don't have the answer sorry (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let's put it out there. <laughs> I don't uh, the thing is, it's like uh, we transport food around the world using fossil fuels. Mm. We, everything we build 
is built using fossil fuel. And even if you stop burning them or you use electric vehicles, you can't make those vehicles without fossil fuel. Mm. How are you going to make them? How are you going to manufacture plastic? Plastic's got oil in it. How are you going to put a tire on a car? They're all made of oil. They've got oil in them. Yeah. There's no way that we could have the same lifestyle, is there? With There is no process. Mm. Not even anywhere close to the same lifestyle. Mm. So we can eke it out a bit longer, but we have to start growing food. We have to start growing food where we live. Everybody has to learn how to do it. Everybody has to learn how to weave, create clothes, recycle everything, get a horse. And you, you, need, you even need fossil fuels to have a bike. Oh, yeah. A bike. Like the first bikes were manufactured using coal, weren't they? <laughs> and when you're looking at the state of the world, particularly I'm just thinking of the global leaders that have been in the news this week, like how, how do you protect your mental health and not get so overwhelmed by climate anxiety and, and worry about the life that we've lifestyle that we've got in the future. Well, I um I went to a I went on a retreat um called Active Hope about about a year ago, and that was really good. Um, I, I actually came came out I came out of it feeling more messed up than I was when I went into it, but I think that was just part of the process. And I've just, I can, I can, I think the, the, the thing that I've come to in my own mind about it all is just accept, it's just acceptance. But so, still taking the steps that you can do for your change as well. Because for me, like acceptance could also mean just, well, that's it, it's going to happen and I'm not going to do anything. Well, I mean, you can, you can, Say acceptance. Well, that's a choice of action, though, isn't mm. it? Rather than, a, a, I don't think that's an automatically thing that would come out of acceptance, right? Okay. That oh, I'm not going to do anything. That's resignation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's more what I'm thinking. Is that I suppose it's that kind of powerless acceptance that this is happening, and I'm not. I can't do anything to change it. I suppose sometimes I'm. I worry that yeah, when I'm struggling. Mm. I feel powerless. I am saying that I have acceptance and I can't do anything to change it in the sense that um, I have, I cannot change the world myself. But I can be part of a change. So, what, what, so, so it's that. So, if you, if you start to think about system thinking, um, and everything is part of a system of interlocking parts, and that includes you. And um, you don't have to be Greta Thunberg or something, but every action you take has an effect, and it has an eff immediate effect. So, so as long as you are acting in accordance with an acceptance, then I think that that has a positive effect. But part of that whole process for me was about 
just trying to be live a, live a life that's as kind as possible to other people, irrespective of their point of view on this. So, like you know, it, I know it, sometimes it is quite difficult not not to react, especially if somebody has a very strongly held view which is polar to your own. It can feel very much like a personal attack when it doesn't need to be because when you have a strongly held point of view it becomes part of you and I saw that happen a lot actually with Brexit Mm. um that people who had a strongly held point of view on either side couldn't maintain a relationship with people who had the other point of view anymore but I Try not. I'm trying. I try very hard not to do that, or at least bring awareness to it. But you know, you can. I, I, you know, just building a resilience around your own survival, and having, having, having a house with full of things that don't rely on needing the grid or a food supply that's that's controlled by other people. Mm quite important to me when I sort of became really really aware of this finite resource that we're exploiting that was going to run out one day and then there wasn't anywhere (laughs) to go after that um oh and it's eating the planet up before (laughs) I was like Um, oh we can't end on Brexit and climate destruction (laughs) To bring this around to to more positive things, but but I think you've given us some some food growing. That is positive. It is positive. And taking taking like control of what you put in your body, taking control of your own food growing, if you can. What could what could be more empowering than that? Not having to rely on on other people for your own survival. Yeah, and I think I get so much more. We were just talking about my allotment. I get so much more than just the produce that's grown, and it's it's that time out in nature, the grounding, the watching the seasons, the patience, the so much more. And it seems to be the science coming out of what I'm getting from the soil and how positive that is for me. So I can definitely, yeah. And there's a lovely sense of community at my allotments, and and really, I've met new people and made connections. So yes, you're right. It is a positive that we can all all do and actually just going back to that those opposing views I had a coach on the podcast Denise Hannard who oh no sorry I think it was um Russell Harvey who suggested that we can one of the little things that we can do to build resilience is by sitting with people with opposite views it is having that little bit of discomfort and exercising the muscle there so it can link back to making us more resilient as people yeah well I think that you know we'll rip ourselves apart if we can't see that there's more there's more that we have in common than that separates us Mm. and there's been so many what's really interesting about polarization of opinion which seems to have got worse and worse in the last decade and sometimes you're like has it really got worse or am I just getting older but I do think it is getting worse um is just how quickly things can swing so you might be 
you might be on the same page. I mean, I was talking about this weekend. This is why it's fresh in my mind. You might be on the same page as somebody today. You think, oh, I've found that person and we gel so well. You know, we share all these same viewpoints. We share, share the same values and it's great. And then suddenly another issue arises in 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 the world on the world stage you know brexit covid like gaza whatever and that same so same person is now having a different this on the opposite side to you Mm. you how could that be because we were the same you were my mirror And then you just realise that we're so polarised at the moment that that it that that switch is so noticeable. Whereas before, I feel that in friendships, um, you could have different points of view and it was okay. Now it's not okay because these camps get drawn up so quickly mm. and entrenched so quickly, and it stops discussion, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it goes back to when you were talking about kindness, and it's really the key, isn't it, to treat how we treat others, whether whether they're agreeing with us or not. Yeah, I mean, I just try and remind myself because sometimes I do obviously feel like a reaction to somebody who's having, who's ranting or something, and I rant myself anyway, but um, can get on one. Um, but and then I just try and remind myself, you know, that that person that person's just feeling really, really strongly about it, and they feel so strongly about it that it's their identity. So if you start to argue with this, then they're going to feel so personally attacked by that that you know it could finish it off. Because because I think a lot of people have lost a p- bit of perspective in terms of separating a point of view from themselves yeah you are your point of view that's a very strong sort of ego strengthening of an ego i've learning been learning loads about ego <laughs> it's fascinating i did not think we'd end up here but that's fine <laughs> all about it in buddhism and buddhist sort of teaching buddha teaching but then sometimes that those strong views and maybe the ego can come from a sense of fear as well. So I find that just having that compassion for people. And I think previously, a few years ago, I'd have been really quick to just delete, unfollow people that were were not agreeing with me, mostly like politically or whether it's to do with the climate. And now I try and uh, and not be so readily to delete them because I think I do need to... I want to see what what other views are out there and and try and get that understanding and some degree of compassion as well. Yeah, because if we keep deleting everybody who disagrees with us, <laughs> be stuck in my. <laughs> after the I'll just be sat in my polytunnel in Scotland. <laughs> There's no, you know, there are no two people that share the same point of view on absolutely everything, are there? No, and it would be really boring if we did, wouldn't it? Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> well, more harmonious, I suppose. Everybody would be in a cave because they love it as much as you and it would be really busy, so... <laughs> yeah, can't wait to get back in the cave. <laughs> oh, when do you think that will be? What have you got coming up? 
oh, I've got the Christmas dinner at the weekend, but I'm not going to go caving. So <laughs> I don't I don't know when will I go back in a cave. I don't know when it warms up a bit because I'm a fair weather cave. We've <laughs> been talking about how tough you are. You've like a... You've given me that label. Well, it was this caving for 25 hours straight and all these expeditions, but yeah. That was years ago. I was young. <laughs> Younger. And besides, there were a lot of other people that could do that trip a lot faster than I could. <laughs> and when you were talking about the caving <laughs> and how it calmed your nervous system and, and just how peaceful you felt, have you found anything else that does that has that positive effect on you when you can't get in a cave? Because... Obviously, it's not the sort. It's not like going for a run where you can just put your trainers on and go out if if you're not living by a cave. Yeah, um, not really. No, oh. that's the difficulty. Um, no, no, nothing quite Medita- like it. Meditating's quite complicated. Yes, you do have to keep at it. Yes, I was having a discussion with a friend the other day about running ultra marathons and and going through the night and all those extreme things. And I was trying to say that there's not there's not lots that I can get from that that I can't get from meditating in that same way. So yes, I I can see that. Are you meditating at the moment? Yes. No, I don't. I know. I don't, <laughs> no, I'm talking to you, Imo. Yes. Yes. No, I do do have a meditation practice, and and I yeah, and yoga nidra is really important to me as well. Okay, I've got a friend that teaches that. Are you doing it daily? No, I'd definitely be lying if I said I did. Yeah, I was doing. I was so when I because I I had a bit of a period where I had um I had some really difficult stuff happening at work which I talked about a lot in the last time I spoke to mm. you but I won't go into them now um so that was workplace bullying that we talked about wasn't it? yeah and then um and then I was also I also sort of had a kind of in the in the year or so following that I had this very ramping up of these menopause symptoms before I was prescribed HRT because I had a real difficulty getting hold of HRT from my doctor um I I was finding it really hard to function because I was so overwhelmed all the time and that was when like meditation really started to to be a daily practice and it was really really good and then since I've got a lot better it's I haven't kept it up like I should really. I know it's really good for me, so I should do it. (laughs) We all know that, don't we? (laughs) Still. Why? You know, why do we self-harm in this way? Why do we not do it? I know, I know. And I'm, you know, I'm a meditation teacher. I'm a yoga teacher and I still have those issues. One of the things that I think is it's because it's one of the reasons that 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 you end up not doing it is because it it starts to loosen the hold that ego has on you and the ego don't want that <laughs> it don't want to die it want to survive <laughs> what were you doing at the weekend <laughs> this is the result <laughs> to find an excuse not to meditate <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, I don't know. That's my theory, anyway. <laughs> I think it's true, and I think yeah, I'm I'm worse than that. I when I'm busy, that's the first thing that goes: the meditation or the exercise and things. When that's that's the time I need it. So yeah, if you find the solution as to why that happens, and please let me know. <laughs> but I think for me, it just comes down to discipline. That's when. <laughs> you have you've had that discipline so you know that you have discipline I know it's just maintaining it in the busy times for me yeah yeah well you know one conscious breath at a time oh that's really nice to end on that I'm going to take that with me yeah Oh, thank you so much. I was going to um, ask where we can all follow your caving exploits and and things, but you don't you don't do social media, do you? No, <laughs> I don't do any caving exploits. <laughs> you will, you will. <laughs> or I need my gardening tips. We should have recorded the conversation and and put that out too. So we'll just find you in a cave somewhere or in a glen in Scotland, and <laughs> yeah. you just, just do that. Or popping up at random mountain festivals too. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'll do that again. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's nice to talk to you again. It was. uh... Yes, it's been lovely. Thank you so much for talking to me and talking all about resilience and many other things. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.